Good morning. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. I want to thank you all for being here today, especially our guests who are with us, whether you're sitting here with us in person or watching online or listening to our podcast. We're super excited to have you come and join us in worship. As Kevin said, we're excited to be in this new sermon series. We're on it for a few weeks now. The Bible doesn't say that. And so it's based on a book by Pastor Adam Hamilton called Half Truths. And we've had a lot of fun digging into some phrases that we probably hear every day or often in our lives. And we think they're attributed to the Bible, but they're not really. And we usually say them, meaning in a positive way, try to comfort someone. But when we really dig down deep, we're actually giving them a negative message. So I'm glad to jump on another one of those today and glad you're here to be a part of that. But before we get going, let me just invite you to join me in a moment of silent prayer that I would deliver God's word today, that we would all hear it and allow God's story to be part of our story. Let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, a lot of people I've found to be, at times in their lives, are superstitious. We try to do things that, that will be to our advantage. For example, maybe we're going on a big job interview, and we want to be sure and wear our lucky tie, our lucky dress, or our lucky suit, that we really want to nail this, and that's going to help us to be able to do that. Or maybe we're in the marching band at school, and we're getting ready to go out for a Friday night football game, and we have our little rituals and uh, habits to make sure that we're going we're gonna to do our very best. Maybe that's to tie our right shoes, shoelaces before we tie our left shoe, or maybe it's to polish up the brass on our horn or, or trumpet or whatever we're playing. We have to do that clockwise rather than counterclockwise. And we all have these little things that we probably do in our lives. And I know that, you know, for people who are athletes, there are usually a lot of superstitious things that, that athletes do before games so that they can try to give themselves an advantage to win. I was reading that Serena Williams, a great tennis professional who's won all kinds of Grand Slam tournaments around the world over the course of many years, whenever she's in a Grand Slam tournament, she always wears the same pair of socks throughout the tournament. So if it goes for several game sets and into the next days, uh, then you might want to feel sorry for her opponent. Maybe her strategy is to knock them down with foot odor. I don't know, but uh, it seems to work for her. She wins a lot of games. Les Miles used to be the football coach at Louisiana State University, LSU, and Every home game that they would play, he would go out before the game began at the home stadium there. He took out a few blades of grass from the football field, and he would eat it. So he would eat grass for good luck, and evidently that's what he did. Also, I was reading that NASCAR drivers, a lot of them don't carry $50 bills on them in the car because they've discovered that several of their colleagues who've been in crashes during races who have died have evidently had $50 bills in their possession in the cars. And so the other drivers don't want that to happen, so they don't carry $50 bills in the car with them. So, you know... Honestly, I don't believe in the power of superstition. I don't believe in some kind of magic talisman that if we do this certain thing, then it's going to bring good to us. But I do think that psychologically for people, this might be a crutch for them. So if Serena Williams feels a little more relaxed, that she's got the same pair of socks on, then it might help her to go out and not to be as stressful and nervous. And 
You know, but she could beat anybody, whether she's wearing socks or not. But I think it sometimes it helps us to relax and just think that there's something going our way. You know, and again, NASCAR drivers, why do you carry money in the first place when you're driving around in a race car and a track? I don't know. I don't think they would need that. But anyway, maybe it's a psychological tool or a crutch that we use sometimes to help us out. Now, what's really interesting, though, is sports fans, right, sports fanatics, people who follow sports, we have our own superstitions, and we try to help our team win, even though our team might be hundreds or thousands of miles away, and we have no way of interacting with them, but yet we still go through our own practices and superstitions and rituals so that we can make sure that our home team or our team doesn't lose, whether that's a college team or professional team. You know, some of us have to sit in the same seat on our couch in our, in our house for every game, and if we're not going to sit in that seat, then our team's going to lose. Some of us believe we have to wear our, our, our jersey, and we don't wash that for the entire season. Some of us believe that, you know, we're not going to shave our beard until our team wins again, or we're not going to shave our legs until our, our team wins again. You know, we'll wear our hat backwards. We have all these superstitions, like I can't watch the game until the first five minutes are gone, or whenever my team starts losing, then I have to change the channel, and they'll do better so I can change the channel back. And so we sports fans, and I'm, I'm guilty of this in my life sometimes for being superstitious, try to do all these things to help our teams win. And that sounds like fun, and we're trying to be team players, but really that's one of the most silly things that we can do. Can we really think that a group of professional athletes or college-level athletes that are playing in an arena thousands or hundreds of miles away that that the only way that they're going to have victory and avoid defeat is if, if Kyle Thompson in Charlotte, North Carolina is sitting on his couch holding his remote control in the exact right angle, that's the only hope that they have. That's crazy, isn't it? I'm a big Duke basketball fan, and you know Mike Shashevsky is the coach of Duke, and they've won five national championships, and he's won multiple gold medals. And it, it would be very selfish of me to think that all of his success had nothing to do with he's being a great coach and, and he's learned a lot of hard lessons in all the years that he's coached and that he recruits great players and that he's awesome under pressure and he knows how to learn from his losses to bounce back, that none of that's important. The only reason that Mike Krzyzewski won Duke basketball games is because I sat in my seat on my couch holding my mouth the right way. That's crazy. It's selfish. It's Actually, it's very narcissistic, isn't it, to think that I can control Duke basketball, all of Duke basketball, millions of people watching it, that I'm in control of that because I have my superstitions. Very narcissistic, self-promoting when we stop and think about that. So I want you to file this away in the, in the back of your brain. We're going to come back to this in, in a little while later. And it's actually going to have something to do with today's message uh, and the truth that we have from Scripture, this, this idea of this narcissistic participation in the world and, and controlling things. So our topic today, right, we're talking about the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, today we're going to look at a phrase that I think many of us might have said or we might have heard. Someone has said it to us, especially during a difficult time in our life. And I think we mean it well, or others, when they say it to us, mean it as a, as a way to help us cope with something tragic or something difficult that's happened in our life. And, and this is what it is. God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. So, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, you went for that job interview and, and you didn't get that, but, but don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. 
And I think the premise is, it's okay, you can handle this, God's with you, God's going to see you through that. And I'm sorry that your boyfriend or your girlfriend broke up with you, and you thought this was the one, and you thought it was heading towards marriage, and you were already thinking about, you know, getting a ring or, or whatever. You know, I'm sorry that, that they broke up with you, but God won't give you more than you can handle. You can handle this. God will get you through this. Right? And so we say that, and and we mean it in, in a very positive way, but we're going to see later as we unpack this that actually it sends a very negative, harmful message. And so let's first of all, though, begin, where, where did this originate? And this phrase really kind of is a twist of Scripture, a real passage of Scripture that someone's totally misinterpreted and passed on. So I'd like us to go right to the Bible to see what the Bible has to say. And we're going to be in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you or have your tablets or your phones or you want to look up on the screen behind me, uh, we're going to be in the New Testament. Uh, a guy named Paul was a follower of Jesus, and he started a lot of churches in the first century uh, in Europe and Asia. And so we're going to be at a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. And so Paul started a church there. He's gone, and he's written a letter to the Christians who were in Corinth in the first century. And so he's encouraging them. They're going through some challenges. And so this is what Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians in the first century who were new Christians, new to the faith and faith in Jesus. And he says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's the phrase. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Right? So we've taken that. We've made it. God won't, you, won't give you more than you can handle when it actually says God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Right? So the original scripture is about how to deal with temptation. When we deal with things that are tempting, that, that we shouldn't do, we want to do, this is Paul giving us advice that God's going to be with us to help with that situation. He's not talking about when something tragic or something difficult has happened into our lives as a way of comforting us. It's all about temptation. Right? So in Paul's world, in the first century, Corinth in Greece is a port. It's a place where ships land and they come and they go. They drop off cargo, they drop off passengers and they go. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. It was kind of a crossroads of Europe and, and Asia. And so all these ships are coming across from the Mediterranean from all kinds of different countries and people from different cultures speaking different languages. And so it was a crossroads of its culture. Just like we believe we're called to be a crossroads, a spiritual crossroads of the South Park community. This was a literal crossroads, a worldwide crossroads where all sorts of people were coming and going. And so in Corinth, there were lots of places to worship all of the Roman and Greek gods uh, that people from around the world believed were real. And Paul was trying to teach the Christians there that there's only one God, one true God, and, and all the rest of these religions are false. But the, the people in his church, the new converts to Christianity, most of them came from those backgrounds and those other places of worship. And so these folks believe for most of their lives in these other gods. Now they've shifted to their faith in Christ. And some of them are feeling tempted to go back and worship the gods, the false gods that they, they used to worship. Right? And to make matters worse, and, and a lot of these religious gathering areas, these temples of these false gods, part of the religious ritual was to sleep with religious prostitutes who were in the temples. 
Right? And so people were used to doing that, and they come to Paul's church, and that's not happening. And so they're feeling tempted to go back. I mean, talk about your aggressive evangelism techniques. I mean, wow, how do you compete with that? Right? And so Paul's saying, look, right, don't fall back into the ways that you were. Those gods aren't real. That, that cult of prostitution is not good for us. We need not to be tempted. And God's going to help us have the strength to do the right thing and stay in the Christian church and do what Christ calls us to do. And he says, you know what? In fact, everything that we're being tempted by, it's nothing new, right? There's no temptation. There might be new ways to experience it, but lust and greed and jealousy and all kinds of things like that, that's nothing new under the sun. People have always struggled with that as, as long as, as, as people have lived on the earth. And he's like, Back in the day when the people of Israel first came into being, like where Moses and got the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff, thousands of years before Jesus, they were tempted too. They were tempted to worship gods who weren't real. They were tempted by sexual immorality. They were tempted to lie. They were tempted to steal. And Paul's saying, nothing that you're going through is new. So be comforted in that, that other people have been tempted just like you. And sometimes they were able to resist it, and that's great. And sometimes they weren't able to resist it, so we can learn from them. And so Paul says the good news is God is with us when we are tempted, and he will help us to resist whatever it is that is tempting us. So it's an, it's an encouraging passage. It's a passage of hope. It's a passage that, that tells us that when we're tempted to do the wrong thing, God will be there, and he'll give us like an escape hatch to take. Right? And so... So in the first century, right, it's crazy kind of stuff going on. Same thing happening in the 21st century. We're all tempted by stuff all the time. Every day we'll be tempted to do things today that we know that we're not supposed to do, that are not good for us, they're not good for our families or people that we love and care for. Right? So, you know, we go to school tomorrow, we have a big test, and, and we're tempted right, to cheat on that, or, or we're getting ready to fill out our taxes coming up next year. You know, we're tempted to cheat on the taxes. God says, right, I'm not the one tempting you because God's not a tempter, but when those, those tests come, when those temptations come, I will help you resist that. Right? When we're at the mall and we're walking around and we see all kinds of people wearing yoga pants and it's not yoga class, right? Men wear them now, women wear them now. Right? It's tempting to, to stare at them way too long with lust in our eyes. Right? God says, I will give you the strength so that you're not able to do that, so you can resist doing that. Right? Maybe you've had a drink or two and you're out in public and, and you're tempted to say, I'm good, I can drive home, I'm going to be okay, all's going to be well. Right? God's gonna, he's going to get to us and say, you know what, it's probably not a good idea for you to be driving after doing that. Right? God's going to give us a way out. Right? So in, in our temptation, the good news is right, God will give us an escape hatch. And we're all tempted. I came home the other day and I went upstairs and my family has this really cool loft area where we kind of relax and, and watch TV. And, and my son, Nathan, who's a kindergartner, five years old, was up there and he had some tech time and he was watching TV. And, and I noticed that he had gotten into all the Halloween candy and goodies that we bought to give out at Halloween. He'd found that and he grabbed a big box uh, of these little packets of cheese puffs that we're going to give out on Halloween. He took the whole box upstairs in the loft. He's by himself up there. And I come up, right? And he's a little cheese. Puff. He's got orange on his face and he's got orange little fingers. And, and I start looking around and I start counting all the packets of cheese puffs that he's eaten. One, two, three, five, ten, thirteen packs of cheese puffs. Right? So I, I went to hug him and kiss him and he smelled and tasted like a cheese puff. And I was just kidding around and him be my little cheese puff. And right, so even five-year-olds understand the power of temptation. 
Right? And so God says, when we are tempted, I will give you an escape hatch. Because i got to believe right now that we, we came in today, and we're all probably wrestling with something that we want to do we know we shouldn't do. Maybe it's the way we spend our time. Maybe it's the way we spend our money. Maybe it's in a relationship that we're in. We want to do something we know we shouldn't be doing, and so we are tempted. Maybe it's an Internet site that you know we really know we shouldn't be going on. And so, so God gives us escape hatches. And so some of those escape hatches are preventative. If we know that there's a situation that's going to tempt us, then God's putting a bug in our ear or a tug on our heart to say, don't go into the situation. Right? Maybe you don't need to go to that bar. You don't need to go near the computer today. You know, maybe right, we don't need to, to go and, and look at, at somebody at the mall. Right? So God gives us preventative measures. But sometimes we find ourselves stuck in the middle of a, of a, a challenging situation. And we know we're getting ready to do something and we can simply cry out inside of our brain or out loud, God, help me. I am in trouble. I am so close to being tempted, Lord. I want to claim what you said in 1 Corinthians and I need your help. Right? If we do that, I believe God will give us the strength that we need to resist temptation. Another cool part of that scripture verse is it says that, that nothing that tempts us exists that hasn't tempted someone else. And so I think an important part of God's escape hatches that he gives us are other people. Our friends and our family, the people in our small groups, the people that we go to church with, that we worship with, that the other people in our lives understand temptation. And so when we feel tempted, we can call them and say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this, and I know that that you can hold me accountable, and I need you to help me. Or I know that you've been through the very same temptation, and I really need for you to come and give me strength. And so maybe God's great gift to us and escape hatch are each other. You know, I've had, I've had many friends and church members and family members who struggle with alcoholism. And it, it, it is a disease, and it's a hard thing to battle with, and it has ruined lives. And, you know, I've seen people try to battle that and lose, and I've seen people try to battle it and win. And, and the ones who seem to, to stay on top of it have a relationship with God, with Jesus, higher power. And I think also they have a support system. Right? With Alcoholics Anonymous, which is just this powerful group of people. And I see it as a, as a ministry. And I'm not sure they would characterize it that way, but I see it that way. And they talk about higher power. And I, and I believe, you know, my higher power, the one higher power is God, Jesus. Right? But, but I've seen people who also go into AA. And, and part of the strength of that are other people who are struggling with alcoholism and addiction. And they rely on each other to say, you know what? I've been a week sober and I really feel like I'm going to head to the bar tonight or I really feel like I'm going to go hang out with my friends who like to drink or I've got, I've, got some, I've got a beer on my kitchen table right now. I need your help. And their sponsor, their friends, their, their, the members of AA surround them with a, a support system to resist temptation and that's how they go another day without drinking. And it's powerful. My grandfather, late in his life, as he was being a caregiver for my grandmother who had many challenging physical problems late in life, it took a toll, a toil on him. And, and it was just hard. And he, I think he felt alone and isolated and just, just wears, wears you down physically and emotionally and mentally. And, and his coping mechanism was he began to drink. And he's raised Baptist and his whole life's a faithful churchgoer and but that's his way of coping, and he, he, he became an alcoholic late in life. And so we found out, you know, the family surrounded him, and, and he really asked for help, and he started going to AA, and he, he would call on people literally, you know, I'm, I'm ready, I'm tempted to drink. They'd come, and they'd be with him. And, 
I mean, because of that support system, because of, of reaching out, right, tapping into the power of God, he quit drinking. And he was sober the rest of his life. It wasn't easy, and every day was a struggle, but he had God, and he had people, and he had an escape hatch, and he used it. So a big idea I want to share with you, the first of the day, big idea number one is when you're tempted, when we're tempted, use God's escape hatch. Because God is going to give us a way out. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can resist. And again, God's not the one tempting us, but when temptation comes, God will help us and he will give us a way out. Whether it's his power or someone else he sent into our lives, God gives us a way to resist temptation. So that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul teaches. That's, that's what it's all about is temptation. Okay, And so that is hopeful to me as a human being who struggles with temptation, that God gives me escape hatches and, and God gives us a way out. But I think we got to circle back around to how we've taken this passage of Scripture and how we've corrupted it. And we've done it in a way that we're trying to help people. We want to help people when something bad happens to them and we don't know what to say. And so it's hard. It's kind of awkward. And so sometimes we just say things that we've heard. And, and one of those things that we've heard is God won't give you more than you can handle. You can handle this. God will get you through this. But if you look at the actual phrase that we're saying, again, it, it's, it's strayed from the First Corinthians passage. God won't give you more than you can handle. That really, if you break it down, is bad theology. Right? Theology, God thinking, God talk, God speak. God won't give you more than you can handle. What that means, what it says is that when bad things happen to us, God has caused that to happen to us. So that's what it means, right? God won't give you more than you can handle. So that means that, that when our grandmother dies of cancer, God caused that because right? God won't give you more than you can happen. When your sister is raped, right, then God is the author of that. When your child is in a wheelchair, then God has placed your child in a wheelchair. Right? When someone breaks up with you and jumps up and down on your heart, God calls that to happen, right? That is bad theology. Because God doesn't cause bad things to happen to us. And so when we say that, we get into trouble and it's harmful. And here's the double whammy piece, okay? So we're saying to people, God's causing these bad things to happen to you in your life. Now we're going to sucker punch them, right? We, we get them in the gut, now we're going to hit them in the face. Now listen, remember when we first started talking about uh, narcissism and the whole superstitious part about sports that, you know, the, the, the future of the Carolina Panthers or the Duke Blue Devils depend on me sitting in my home 100 or 1,000 miles away, and that's very narcissistic and very selfish. We're taking that exact same logic and we're applying that to people who are going through some of the worst times in their lives. God won't give you more than you can handle. Here's how we apply that. Your sister's been raped. God won't give you more than you can handle. God caused your sister to be raped because you can handle it. That's what we're saying. God caused your sister to be raped because you can handle it. I don't know about you, but that's not the God that I want to serve. That's not the God that I believe in. And if I'm strong enough to handle it, now I feel guilty. It's my fault because I'm strong. I don't want to be that strong. Because I don't want my sister to be raped. I don't want my child to be in a wheelchair. I don't want my heart to be ripped out in a romantic relationship because I'm so strong that I can handle it. And so it's 
bad theology and it hits people in the face. It hits them in the gut and we're trying to help them, but we're doing the exact opposite. So big idea number two of the day, don't say God won't give you more than you can handle. Just don't say it. Take it out of our vocabulary, right? Because it is harmful and it is hurtful. It is, it's just, it's, it's gut-wrenching, right? Your teenager died. God won't give you more than you can handle it, right? It's your fault because you're strong enough to handle it. So God's done that to you. Don't say God won't give you more than you can handle. So what do we say? Because we're really trying to be nice. We're really trying to comfort people. We really, in those difficult situations in life, we, we want to help people. So, so what are some alternatives? How can we help people who are going through a difficult time or a hard situation? You know, what are some things that we can say that are true and genuine and hopefully can be helpful? I think it just has to come from our hearts. It has to come from our guts. But, but these are some suggestions that I might invite you to consider. When something tragic or something hurtful has happened to someone, maybe we just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. Right? I, you know, a lot of people, we, we're going through difficult times. We want other people to recognize that it's a, a difficult situation. and We want them to care for us, to just say, you know what? I don't have the answers. I don't know why it's happening, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're hurting. I'm sorry your family's going through this. I'm sorry you, you know, your city was flooded by Irma. I, I'm, just, I'm sorry. Right? So, so we're honest about that. Right? And we, we can also say that it's not fair. Right? There's a lot of things in life that aren't fair. Lots of things in life that aren't fair. Pastor Nancy preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Right? The, the topic was you know, everything happens for a reason. Mm-mm. There's not some big destiny kind of chart in heaven that says everything's got to happen the way it has. We have freedom of choice, right? And sometimes things happen in life that aren't fair. Sometimes we make bad decisions and that messes us up. Sometimes other people do things that, that are hurtful to us. We haven't deserved it. And sometimes things happen. A tree falls on a car for no reason, right? Sometimes it's just not fair. And it's okay to say, this is not fair. Or this stinks. Or this, you can insert whatever curse word you want to or not. Right? This is not fair. This is, is not right. It's not cool. It stinks. It's, it's terrible. Because when we're going through difficult circumstances, sometimes it's good just to name it. This is not good. This is not right. right? Pastor Nancy Nye, in many years of counseling people and and seeing people go through hard times in churches and, and funerals, right? Sometimes we just have to be honest, right? When we've buried infants in our congregation, when we've buried teenagers, when we've buried young adults, when, when we've buried older adults who fought and struggled with the disease that just tore their life apart for years, that we say it's not fair. And we don't understand this. And we know that God didn't cause this to happen. And it's okay to be upset and angry. It's not fair. Think another thing we say is, I'm here for you. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But I'm here. If, if you want to yell, if you want to cry, if you just want to sit in silence, if you need a hug, if you need me to take you out to a movie or go for a walk, I am here for you. And part of that is, how can I help you? What do you need? Do you need space? Do you, do you need a sounding board? When I was in school in Boston, my grandfather died and and my parents, you know, were just stressing out about the emotion of it. My mom lost her father. I lost my grandfather. And, 
you know, struggling with the logistics of the funeral and how to get me back home from school. And, you know, we had a, a family who was a, a friend, a husband, wife. They came up and they said to my parents, you know, we would like to pay for Kyle's flight to come home. We know this is a tough time for you. This is the last thing you need to worry about. Let us take care of that. And, you know, I would have, I would have come home no matter what, obviously. I would have, they would have gotten me home. And, but they just, it was a great gift of grace. One less thing to worry about logistically, one less thing to worry about financially. And I will never forget that, that family. I'll never forget that couple and how much they meant to my family in that time to get me home, to be with my family, to grieve for my grandfather's loss. It's just how can I help you? I think it's okay, too, to say, I love you. If, if we do love them or you know, if we're not to that stage in a relationship, I care about you. Right? People need to know that they are cared for, especially in difficult circumstances. I love you. I, I care for you. And we can also say God loves you because God does love you. And say, God didn't cause this to happen, but God, God is with you. Right? And, and we certainly want to jump to the good news that you know, it's been a death to say, yeah, we believe in resurrection, we believe in life eternal, we believe Jesus came to make all that possible, and, and that's good. But sometimes people aren't ready for the happy part yet. Sometimes people need to struggle and be angry or be sad or be numb. And, and sometimes we need to say God loves you and God understands because you know, yeah, heaven is great and it's coming and that's the good news, but God also understands pain. Right? Jesus was God, but he was human, and, and he understood rejection. He understood physical beatings. He understood torture. He understood his friends leaving him and abandoning him. God himself understands the loss of a child. He lost his only son. Right? So sometimes, yeah, we want to talk about heaven and the glorious things of God, but sometimes we need to say our God understands our pain and where we are. And that we can go to him and we can be mad at him or we can be sad with him or we can be whatever. And so God loves you. And God can handle whatever you're going through because God's been through that. These are powerful things that we can say, I think, that really make a difference in people's lives. Really make, and they're scriptural and they're true, right? So maybe the alternative also is God will help you handle all that you've been given. Life throws stuff at us all the time. Whatever it is, God will help us get through that. Let's look at the Bible again. I mean, this time we're going to look in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And we're going to look, right, it's right in the middle of the Bible. The Psalms are really cool because they're written by people like you and me who are going through situations like you and I go through every day. And they're expressing all the emotions that we have. Sometimes people in the Psalms are laughing and they're on top of the world. Like everything, I got in the college of my choice and I'm getting married or I'm having a baby. And sometimes people are sad and sometimes people are scared and sometimes people are angry and they're yelling at God saying, this is not fair, this is not right. Where are you, God? But here they say, God... You comfort me. Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, very popular psalm. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. Another translation. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. No matter what I'm going through, God is with me. God will see me through. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. God is our refuge, right? We can hide in God. God is our strength. He's ever-present, always with us. And again, from Paul in Romans, this is in the New Testament. This time he's writing to the church in Rome rather than Corinth, right? First century. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It was dangerous to be a Christian in the first century. You could die for your faith. 
But Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. That's the kind of stuff that we can say to people when they're hurting in life. I was 16 years old. I was living in Lenore, North Carolina. I grew up in Asheville. Moved to Lenore uh, between my freshman year of high school and my sophomore year of high school. I was now 16. I was in uh, Lenore in high school there. Got a, a phone call uh, from some friends and church folks in Asheville one day saying that a, uh, a girl in our youth group, student, 16-year-old, her name was Tanya. She's a short little firecracker, firecracker kind of a person. Just awesome. We all loved her. Tanya's a great part of our student ministry and given us a call that, that she was in a car accident and died. It was raining one night. She was driving on the road, and she slid off because it was slick, and she hit a tree, and she died. She wasn't drinking. She wasn't driving erratically or dangerously. A storm came. She slid off the road. She hit a tree, and she died. It was awful. She's 16 years old. She had the rest of her life ahead of her. She's a good Christian young lady, and she had dreams and aspirations, and everyone loved her, and she's dead now. So they called to tell us. They were inviting us to come back to be a part of the, of the funeral. They were asking, the family was asking the students in our youth group to be the pallbearers, to carry her casket, right, from the hearse to the, to the grave right after the funeral. And so, like, you know, I hear this, and I'm in shock. I'm numb. I'm mad. I'm sad. I'm going through, like, five million emotions. And so my new friends in high school hear about this. They surround me. And they're like, hey, man, we're sorry. We're praying for you. You know, what can we do? And we're just a great support system. My parents, my brother, they rallied around me. We, we went back to Asheville. We got there for the funeral and we got there early because we gathered together as the youth group and we were there with my youth pastor and we cried together and we remembered memories of Tanya together and we laughed and we talked about what we're getting ready to do in the worship service and you know it was just, I don't remember all the words that were said but we were there together. So then we go into the church and you know, we walk through uh, the aisles and it's just packed out because you know, a 16-year-old girl dies, that's a really big deal. So all the kids from the high school were there and the family was there, the church was there and you know, they reserved seats for us in the front rows for the pallbearers and we go up there and you know, I'm just, at this point, I'm numb. Right? And my youth pastor starts preaching and talking about all the things we've been talking about. This is not fair. God didn't cause this. She had her whole life ahead of her. We believe in the wonderful power of the resurrection, and we're going to see her again one day, and we take comfort in that. But right now, it's okay to be upset and that God is with us. And so we went through the whole thing. Then we went to the, the graveyard, right? I grabbed the casket at 16 years old of another 16-year-old, we carried her you know, to the top of the grave you know, where they had the little thing before they lower it down. We, we had the graveside ceremony. We gathered back at the church. You know, we, we, we had some goodbyes. It was just this crazy experience. So many mixed emotions. And thankfully, thankfully, not one person said to me, right, God won't give you more than you can handle. Because I probably would have punched him right in the face. That's the last thing that I would have needed to hear, that it was my fault she died or that God caused her to die at age 16. I mean, we leaned on each other and we cried and we were mad and we leaned in Scripture and we cared for each other. And I don't remember everything that was said, but I remember that it was a tough time, but we got through it together. It was a tough time, but we got through it together. 
So we think about that. Let me just invite the band to come back up as uh, I just want to kind of close this out today. You know, usually when I have a message, I try to have one big idea, but I had to have two big ideas today because we, we have the scripture and what it means, and then we have what it's been twisted to mean. So I kind of had to attack it from two ways. But I think ultimately there's one thread that, that binds this all together, right? So the big idea, number one, right? Use the escape hatches that God gives us. Right? When we're tempted, we can rely on God. We can rely on each other to get out of that temptation. And then the second big idea is don't say to anybody, God won't give you more than you can handle because it's harmful. Right? So those seem like two entirely different conversations and two big ideas, and absolutely, but I think the common thread among them is relationships. I think the common thread is relationship. When we're tempted, we don't have to stand on our own. That God is with us. And that we have people in our lives who help us navigate the waters, the dangerous waters of temptation. And, and so we do that in relationship. I, I think when we're hurting and we're struggling and bad things have happened to us that we don't want to do that by ourselves. And so when something tragic has happened, when something difficult has happened, that, that we can say we're not alone and that God is with us and other people are with us to get us through this. So I think the message through the day is we should be in relationships. Their relationships are the most important thing in the world. That Jesus said the top two things to do in the entire Bible were to love God and to love people. The number one core value of our church is relationships. That, that we want to be in relationships with each other. That we want to be a crossroads where people go through life together. That we're not alone when we're tempted. We're not alone when we're dealing with tragedy. We're not alone when good things are happening. When we're triumphing and we're we're making the team and we're getting into college and we're getting married and we're buying our first house that we can celebrate with other people. So brothers and sisters today, if you're feeling tempted and you need some help, look forward in someone else or in God. If you're going through a difficult time right now or you're trying to counsel somebody who's had a, a terrible tragedy happen, know that you're not alone and that we can lean on God and that we can lean on each other. We, we value real relationships. We value rich relationships. Because together we're stronger. And together we can handle whatever life throws our way. Together we can handle tragedy. Together we can handle temptation. Together we can handle triumph. It's all about relationships. And together we will handle what life has in store for us.